Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we watched Elaine May's 1976 cult classic, Mikey and Nikki, starring Peter Falk and John Cassavetes as Mikey and Nikki of the title. Uh, and they play two low-level monsters in Philadelphia who are having the worst night of their lives. The entire movie takes place over one evening, and... Uh, we're going to have to spoil the whole thing. It's very hard to talk about this movie without sort of explaining the plot, I think. But um, but it's also like plot and spoilers. It's not that kind of film. Right. And it also <laughs> came out in 1976. So, you know, uh, this was a request from one of our patrons. Uh, Jen sponsored this episode. Uh, I would like to sincerely thank Jen for making me watch this movie that made me very miserable because I fucking loved it. I wanted to read uh, her message about what she said to us, the request. Uh, she said, of Elaine May, it's her birthday soon. Her birthday has now passed because this was earlier, but happy birthday to Elaine May, who is now 88 years old, I believe. A legend. So I'd really love it if you guys could watch Elaine May's 1976 masculinity nightmare, Mikey and Nikki, simultaneously a rom-com and a horror show. And I thought that really summed up what this movie is doing, <laughs> so I wanted to read it out loud at the top of the episode. Yeah, this is like a buddy movie, and it's kind of funny, but it's not a comedy, and they're horrible. But also, I loved them, and clearly the movie loves them, and it, it was just like so smart. And I yeah. was like, it's incredibly also taken watching it. this. It's like incredibly easy to see why it wasn't successful, both in the sense that it's not easy to market, and in the sense that it doesn't give you what anyone wants out of this kind of film. Because everyone has expectations for a buddy film, and everyone has expectations for a mob film. It is technically a mob film because it's about people who are like very low down on the ladder of being in organized crime, and it is about two longtime friends who spend much of the film bickering. But, like, as Morgan said, it's very miserable. <laughs> like, the comedy elements are very minor. And for reasons that we will go into in a minute, this was especially relevant for Elaine May, who is obviously kind of more famous for being a comedian and a comedy director. And, uh, yeah, like, literally the tagline of this film was, like, you won't like him. And it's like, no, you won't like them. Both of these characters are repulsive for different reasons. They don't treat each other very well. They certainly don't treat women well. <laughs> um, and it's just a very depressing situation that is just unappealing and gross. <laughs> yes, you have you have summed it up. Although, again, I was like raptly transfixed watching this movie. I was just mesmerized by the whole thing. And I think more taken with the horrible men than you again yeah. they are awful like i'm not saying that they're not awful and we'll discuss specifically ways in which the movie very straightforwardly is like this man is a racist so she's not cutting any corners but yeah. i found the acting just like so incredible and again i think the movie is making you aware of how much they love each other in this completely dysfunctional, horrible way. Yeah. The acting is incredible. All of the dialogue, the script, there are like elements of improvisation there as well. Obviously incredible. Um, I think basically my take on this was like, I was watching and I was like, I recognize that this is really good, but it was quite hard for me to really focus on it because it's quite, it's quite like a lo-fi film, which is a lot of very intense, also quite mumbly conversations happening between two re realistic middle-aged men. Filmed in almost like a documentary style, like it's very kind of uh, like grainy in that sort of documentary way where it feels like you're actually watching reality. 
And I was like watching it at like 10 o'clock at night after working for a day and doing a bunch of housework. So, so I was probably not in the ideal headspace to be absorbing that. But um, definitely an interesting film. And Elaine May as a person is fascinating. Yes. So we'll give a little bit of background about her here. We will link to various uh, reviews and things of the film, uh, which we were reading, which are all very interesting. The Criterion Channel also has this movie right now, if you are in America or in another country and are enterprising, I will say no more. And they have, they put out this movie on DVD, which means that if it's on the channel, they have all the extras on there also. So I was watching a bunch of the extras, which are very interesting. Um, I'm sure I'll refer to them at various places, but if you watch this movie and like it, I would recommend watching some of that stuff because it was fascinating and that's where some of this information is coming from. But um, I actually saw Elaine May on Broadway last year in a Kenneth Lonergan play called The Waverly Gallery. And the play is like, fine. It's not bad. It's Kenneth Lonergan, so it can't be bad, but it's not like his best work. But she was unbelievable in it. She's playing the sort of grandmother figure in this family. And over the course of the play, she starts to have some sort of Alzheimer's or dementia situation going on. And it's simultaneously very funny and very heartbreaking, her performance. And I knew of her when I saw it. I think I knew of this film kind of, but I definitely didn't get how important an experience I was having when I saw it, that I was, like, seeing Elaine May in that this is, the age of, like, 87. It's, always the way when you see someone from who's, like, two generations ago, and there's so, like, obviously there's, like, a few people who, because they're, like, the Ian McKellens of the world and they've had a career that, like, comes into the modern pop culture sphere, they're huge now, but, like, Elaine May is this hugely influential person. She is, like, up there with Woody Allen, obviously, no endorsement to fucking Woody Allen, who his movies I don't really even like. But like in terms of the level of kind of cultural influence, like she is kind of at that level, but she was more kind of sketch comedy. Like she and Mike Nichols were known as a comedy duo. That was kind of how they both became really famous. And she also was like one of the very first women to become famous for like live comedy rather than kind of movie, TV, sitcom style comedy. And... I have definitely seen like a few of their sketches together. I don't think that there's actually that much on YouTube just because it was so long ago. Like it was, you know, 1960 and they're very funny. What can I say? I was just looking up to see which ones to recommend to you guys that are actually available on YouTube. And I think the easiest one to get into is the water cooler sketch, which is what it sounds like. And it's very funny and you watch it and it's like, it's based around one pop culture reference, which you won't recognize from 1960, but every other element of it literally could be ripped from the headlines today. It is a perfect piece of satirical situational comedy. They are brilliant. Yeah. Just before we started recording, I watched a few because I've seen so many references to them as a comedy duo in, you know, reading about culture, but I've never actually seen any of them. And I was like, well, before we record this, I should actually watch some of the stuff. And I watched that one and the other two that popped up immediately on YouTube, which were like Jewish mother, where she acts like a Jewish mother and he's calling her and she's berating him for not calling her. And then one where he's going, he goes to a funeral parlor and asks for like the $65 special that is advertised. And every single element of having someone buried that you can conceive of is not included in the special. <laughs> She's like, so do you want a casket? And he's like, what? <laughs> the quality is horrible on that one in particular. I mean, it's really, really bad. They've all been like ripped from, you know, VHS 
at some point but um i was like lying on my couch feeling ill and like laughing hysterically at these you know terrible quality clips from 1960 she and they were i mean they were both we're talking about her today it's just so fucking funny so funny she's also like a character actor because they're both really funny and they had this obviously like amazing partnership but i think she has more kind of versatility in terms of like the range of styles obviously not enormously relevant to this movie because she is a director and it's not a comedy but um it does kind of give from the context for what the audience was expecting because by this point she was a really famous figure like she'd made two comedy films that were very popular and she was like hey what about this one and everyone was like fuck no this is almost two hours of men mumbling <laughs> so yes it also i mean she clearly was just i mean she is still alive so I don't want to talk about her in the past tense. She announced at the end of last year, incidentally, she was like, I'm making my return to movie making. And that was the end of last year. And she is 88 years old. I was like, oh, God. Love why? it. Love it. Uh, well, cross your fingers that that actually happens. And we will see because nobody's doing anything right now. So the timing could have been better. But um, the thing that popped up on YouTube after I watched those clips was her giving a tribute to Mike Nichols at the AFI film something something. And it was probably 15, 20 years ago at this point. Also to interject, Mike Nichols directed The Graduate, Catch-22, The Birdcage, Closer. He's he's a big director. <laughs> and many, many, many theater productions over the yeah. years. Um, he died a few years ago. He's like a legendary figure in Hollywood. So the room is filled with like every famous person you could think of from 15 plus years ago because he worked with all of them. And she comes out and she's just talking about like Albert Einstein because they were like third cousins apparently, which he discovered at some point. And Harrison Ford, curmudgeonly Harrison Ford is like howling in the audience. I mean, laughing like a maniac because she is so funny. And it really did convey to me just how powerful a figure she was in terms of like getting people to just listen to her and be in awe of her and do whatever she wanted which makes sense because she was only the third woman to direct a movie in the hollywood studio system ever which is so depressing and crazy which is wild when you consider how many women were making films prior <laughs> prior to the kind of like hollywood boom yeah but yeah, in terms of like mainstream American filmmaking, it is still wild to consider. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's nuts. And the production history of this movie is sort of legendary as well. And some of that, the quality of that I'm describing of her just being this like unbelievable presence, you could kind of see what was going on. So she had written it years and years before they actually made it or some form of it anyway. There are stories of, like, Mike Nichols saying that in the 50s, when he knew her in Chicago, there were, like, scraps of Mikey and Nikki on, like, you know, pieces of paper in her apartment because she was working on it. She apparently grew up in a, in quotes, connected family to the mob. Very little detail pro provided on this, so I don't know what the deal was with that exactly, but that apparently was the case. Yeah. I mean, the implication basically is that these characters were drawing from her own observations, like, when she was younger, of the the reality of like low level monsters yeah one of the stories that was in one of the criterion extras was that she had like heard a story when she was young about a hitman who had to kill his best friend and then had observed all these people and this sort of world and that that was sort of the genesis of this movie 
And this is also coming shortly after The Godfather, which we were also talking about last week. And it is like The Godfather, which I haven't seen in a zillion years. Um, I should watch it again. But that movie is upsetting. Like it's there's both one and two are definitely like brutal and awful, but it's glamorized, you know, in a way that this movie is not at all. And she's clearly interested in showing that like the low down people who are not the Don Corleones of the world are just like schmucks. And there's nothing romantic about this, even slightly. So she winds up somehow convincing the studio to make this and casts Peter Falk, who she had worked with before, and John Cassavetes, who was kind of still early on in his career, but was known for what for his thing. I've never actually seen a John Cassavetes movie, but even I know like his his thing is so known, right? I have seen the wildest thing in his entire filmography, which is when William Shatner and Adam West of Batman fame were going to star in a TV show about Alexander the Great with William Shatner as sexy Alexander the Great and they hired him because he was good at horse riding, which is his primary talent. And um, John Cassavetes is one of, you know, the blokes. Um, And this was not picked up for series, but it was turned into a TV movie, which I watched for the very obvious reason of the lead actors. (laughs) So (laughs) that's a peculiar blip on his road to stardom. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I was thinking more of the films that he made. Yeah, as a, as a respected artist. <laughs> I mean, he was in a bunch of like studio movies in the 60s and then in the 70s starts making the indie indie-ish films like One Under the Influence and Husbands which he yeah. which Peter Falk starred in. Part of the reason, I, apparently she auditioned a bunch of people and but part of the reason she cast them was that they had this pre-existing relationship and she thought that it would work in the movie, which it clearly does. And she went millions of dollars over budget, which especially back then was a lot of money because this movie had a pretty low budget because she just shot forever and ever and ever having them talk and talk and talk and talk. And the studio was not happy about this. And the legend has it that she literally was like hiding reels of film from the studio when she was editing for two years because she didn't want them to like interfere with her vision. The film finally winds up getting released on Christmas 1976 and like the box office was so bad I can't find it I was searching I could not find how much money it made because it made nothing zero dollars Peter Falk's wife went to see it you know (laughs) um Scorsese probably went to see it you know he was like I've wrapped Taxi Driver I'm gonna reward myself by watching this film exactly and then she makes Ishtar after that and then that's it for Elaine May's directorial career because that's how it works in Hollywood with women but um, it clearly was, was quite a shoot and editing process, but she got her way. It is definitely the movie that she wanted to make. And the center of it is these two actors who are just incredible, as we've said. And we'll now get into the meat of the film more. But um, Peter Falk was in the middle of doing Columbo at this point. So he was like america's favorite person i mean he he just looks you look at him and you're like this is colombo like the man is (laughs) colombo i mean i have never seen an episode of colombo and i still think that so you're correct right i don't think i think i mean i've seen bits of colombo i don't think i have ever sat down and watched an entire episode of colombo because at what juncture would i have done so right but um you know i've seen wings of desire yes the princess bride 
Correct. The Princess Bride. <laughs> the voice from The Princess Bride, right, is like ingrained into your brain if you are younger than a certain age and have watched a film. And uh, he just has it all, man. He's got the voice, which is so distinctive and so good. His face is amazing. Incredible and his hair is amazing. Face. It's just the whole picture. An incredible, his whole look. And they're both obviously very scruffy. Like, I think one of the things Morgan and I were talking about when I was watching this, um, very rudely messaging her halfway through, was just like, this. the men in this look like shit. I mean, obviously, people in 1970s movies in general don't look as pristine as they do now, because it was like a grimier era, kind of sandwiched between the fuzzy-lensed glamour of the 1940s and the current trend of just everyone looking like a mannequin. But man, this is CD. Like, you, you start watching it and you're like, I can literally smell, like, the cigarettes and the horrible, like, sweat of this guy's disgusting flophouse apartment that he's hanging out in because he's convinced he's going to be murdered because he's taken a thousand dollars from the mob. And they look bad. Bad skin, bad hair, haven't showered. Cassavetes smoking. I mean, Cassavetes was died at very young of cirrhosis of the liver because he was such a fucking alcoholic, and you can't tell because his skin, not good. He's not good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, and he starts off. He has not shaved, and he's very sweaty because I think he's in a, he's in a hotel. He's hiding out at no at the very beginning. Yeah, I well, I was kind of I was yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like it's not his apartment, but I was kind of reading it as like you know, like a sort of rent by the day or something apartment. You know, it's a shithole. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a rented shithole of some description. And he, and he, so he calls up Mikey, who is his best friend, because he's stolen from the mob and he thinks there's a hit out on him. And he is just completely losing his mind. Like, it, the very first, I was like, I assume that this is real because it's a movie and therefore... Why wouldn't there be a hit out on him? But, like, you can't quite tell whether or not it's real or he's just fully a crazy person because well, he's, he's like, so he's, convincingly he's aggressively like, paranoid. Oh, my God. Mikey comes in and literally is like, let me massage your neck and force this, like, you know, like, antacid down your throat because you are going out of your mind. <laughs> and it's Peter Fox. So he's, like, very soothing and calm. Very paternal. Yes. And it was like, we need to get you some half and half for your ulcer, which I guess is what they gave ulcers in the 1970s. I mean, I don't, I've never had an ulcer, so what do I know? And he, he has to, he says, like, I'm going to run out to the corner store and, like, get you some half and half. And has to, like, time it. It's, like, 15 minutes or else he's not going to let it back in because he's losing it. And he sprints over. And this great scene. The guy Amazing at scene. the corner store. I was like, definitely most engaged at the first third of this film, which is definitely indicative of the fact that I was probably too tired to be watching it. But uh, I suspect but, so. Like, yes. This this was a great scene. <laughs> and the guy at the deli is like, "We don't sell like cream, just cream. Like, what are you saying?" And he's just not interested in engaging. And he finally says, "Like, charge me for fifteen coffees, and I'll just." pay for just the cream like oh it's my god it's such a real conversation like yes. you can really imagine watching this conversation unfold and getting ready to sort of make a run for the door when things get weird yep. <laughs> and he jumps over the counter and like grabs the guy by the neck and like screams at him and like shoves him up against the counter i mean it's excessively and needlessly violent and you're like oh this guy is peter falk but also 
he is not good. Like this is a yeah. this is bad because he's because he a can mob. just yeah he can absolutely turn in a dime between being like okay I'm here to take care of you have an antacid and being like he literally yells I'm crazy I'm insane. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it's also very much in the vein of like calculated for sure because it's oh, like yeah. he knows that yeah. he can you know he knows how to utilize acting like a total psycho which is more frightening than when someone is just like really emotionally volatile because you know that they're kind of thinking about how to scare people which is kind of the the first original kind of key split between those two characters who are both terrible yes yes so i mean this is the point where if anything we have said intrigues you and you want to watch this movie you should stop listening now because we have to we have to really spoil it to explain what the movie is and I found the first like half an hour where you're sort of unclear about what exactly is going on and the movie sort of leads you in one direction or the other really engaging so again we will not be ruining that for you if you continue to listen FYI um, it becomes apparent that Mikey Peter Falk is in fact leading Nikki John Cassavetes to the hit and is betraying him which you can tell that Nikki is I mean, obviously, he's massively paranoid of everything at the get-go. But you can tell as the movie goes on that he's specifically suspicious of Mikey. Although you can never quite tell exactly how much he knows what's going on. Which yeah. is part of the well, genius of the performance, I think. And also there's this thing where it's like, as Morgan said, like they are best friends. But like they are, they're old best friends, so they were close when they were young. But they're now both like 45 or something. And it's like their friendship in recent years has clearly been more about Nikki Cassavetes. He's kind of more of a loser and he keeps calling up Mikey to bring him out of scrapes rather than it being like, oh, we're buddies who support each other and hang out. But he simultaneously has done better in the mob. And so Mikey feels insecure because he's, you know, he's the cool one, basically. Uh, yeah, and kind of the journey they're taking is they're sort of like meandering around in the middle of the night dealing with this like paranoid shit fit that Nikki's having is that Nikki kind of keeps bringing up all these reminiscences and it's kind of hard to tell whether he's just bringing these up at random and talking about it and trying to ingratiate himself or he's like doing it really strategically to try and basically persuade Mikey not to give him away to the assassins through like emotional blackmail. Yeah. So, like, the vibe with Mikey is that he has this, obviously, consciousness of what he's doing and what's going on. And so he's wrestling with, like, should I do this or not? And it's tormenting him. Whereas Nikki is, like, this little boy who is badly behaved, which, again, we'll get into the details of that in a second. But it's more kind of feckless. Like, he's just kind of running around. But you can't tell exactly if it's on purpose. I mean, I think it's a genius performance because I really... I don't think you're supposed to have, like, an answer to this question, right? But their vibes are very different. Whereas one is just kind of like... There's no superego at all with him, right? And then the other guy is just kind of like, uh, I can't deal with having to think like, about this. And also, like, the crimes they've both done are so radically different because what Nikki's done... It's taken what is not actually a very large amount of money, but will get him killed. Whereas Mikey is like betraying the longest, the oldest friend in his life. Yes, which is bad and you shouldn't do it. So there was an interview with Peter Falk on the Criterion channel that was great that I was listening to. 
I mean, he literally is just like in this picture in this like old timey voice when he's like talking about the picture and doing this. And I was like, oh, spectacular. And then he made a stereotypical comment about Japanese people. And I was like, 20th century. Gotta love it. Um, but uh, what he, he was sort of explaining what had appealed to him about the movie and he was analyzing the character. And what he said, which I thought was totally right, was that he was like, well, there's a civilized world where you and I live. And then there's the world of the mob. And there are just rules for what happens when you do things you're not supposed to do, like steal money from the mob and you get killed when that happens because that's like, you're not allowed to do that. And then you get knocked off. Like that's right. And he said that his character's problem in the movie is that he's not actually really cut out to be doing this job. And so he was like, everybody else in the mob, if there's some guy stealing, would be like, yeah, obviously you got to kill him. And he instead is in this like tormented thing in his head of like, should I kill him or not? Which again, to like a normal person is obviously no, but like he doesn't have the thing wrong in his brain that allows him to just be like, yeah. Cause I don't yeah, think either of the people in this movie are actually like sociopaths. They're just no. bad. Right. But also like the thing with Mikey is that he's got one foot in one foot out because he's got this sort of suburban life with a nice, normal middle-aged wife. And yes. Nikki's personal life is a fucking catastrophe. Oh, yes. Uh, that is correct. But also the nice life he has with the wife in suburbia is like totally pleasant. And she's presented as this like very nice lady who just clearly does not grasp the depths of the situation. But it's not as compelling to him as this fuck up who he's yeah, like I mean, dragging he's around, himself right? to be dragged across town to just be embroiled in this nonsense. Yeah. The thing I kept thinking about watching it was um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, actually. Less the movie Ooh, than the book. Oh, Morgan, that's such a good comparison. Thank you. <laughs> the book has more of the sort of like granular sort of grimy details of these people's lives. I mean, the movie applies too, but you get more of the sort of seediness of the... Yeah, jo- John you know. Carrey is definitely a writer who loves his cigarette smoke in a bad way. Yeah. A non-sexy cigarette is really his call oh, yeah. And the the guy in that book who winds up being the, the mole who they find at the end, like by the end of that book, he's like living with this woman who he's knocked up in this like sort of gross apartment somewhere in London. And like, it's not pretty. And he is like textually bisexual in the novel. And he has this best friend from Oxford who they have this relationship. That's like this great love, which is subtextual, but also you're supposed to understand that it is a romantic thing. And he over the, at some point in the book, like sends him off to get nabbed because he's a spy for the Soviets. Right. And he, the friend almost dies. And I don't think it's actually clear in the book whether the bad guy actually expected him to die or not, but either way, very bad. And neither of these two texts are allegories for anything. Like, both of them were actually inspired by these people's real experiences with these subcultures, right? Like, Le Carre was a spy, and Elaine May apparently had this experience of some kind with these sort of mobster people. But what I found so interesting about them among other things was like they're both sort of addressing this crisis of masculinity in a way that these men are like having emotions about each other but can't experience them in a normal way so instead they do literally the worst thing possible which is like try to kill each other 
And in this, I mean, it's we've more definitely subliminal. discussed this in like other episodes where we've talked about mob movies. In fact, I think we did like relatively recently, which is that like one of the reasons that like mob movies and army movies are so often like histrionically emotional, and it's because it's like the one popular media outlet the hypermasculine men can use to cry and freak out about, and they're all about men crying and freaking out. Yes, but this one was made by a woman. Yes, so it crucially feels different even though it's in that zone of of what's going on and tinker taylor is more i mean again it's all done in a sort of clever way so that it's not like making the straight men who love john carrie uncomfortable but like it is more explicitly sexual like there's an actual romantic relationship going on in that book which i find really interesting and in this like it all the sex stuff is going through women like it's all subliminal but it's pretty clear what's going on i mean the moment they have that is the most sincerely positive is, I don't remember what leads up to it, but they're on the bus and they're messing around and they, they're really getting along. Like something has happened. I can't recall. But I mean, they, they're like little boys and they have a lot of kind of physical grappling with each other. Yes. But they're on and the bus. Body language. Like, yeah. Cassavetti's body language in this is so good. Oh my so God. Good. Well, they also just like stare at each other all the time and you're like, oh dear. Like just. Yeah, Get in like the yourself. introductory scene, they have a lot of this sort of um, passive dog power play looking up and down at each other kind of thing yeah. going on. Yeah. Uh, the big scene where they fight near the end, they're literally like rolling around on the street on top of each other. I mean, it's, you know. But there's this scene in the bus where they've kind of reconciled whatever fight they were having. They've sort of gotten along. And it seems like Mikey at this point has decided that he's not going to turn him over. That's the vibe I get from his face in that scene is that like, he's just, no, we're going to run to the airport. We're going to go away together. I'm going to come with you. and We're going to run away. And instead of doing that, because that would mean the two of them leaving together, which is scary. Nikki's like, no, let's go see my girlfriend. And that leads to the most horrible scene in this film. So, it's, again, he's married, but he's, he's separated from his wife because he's a fuck-up and has been horrible to her. So they go see this woman, uh, Nellie, who's played by this by Carol Grace, who appeared in very few movies, but is amazing in this film. Yeah, and she's so, I would not describe Carol Grace as an actress, but she's one of these sort of 20th century cultural figures <laughs> that yeah. you don't really get anymore, or maybe we'll only know who they were in 50 years' time, but, like... She's one of the many people who, like, allegedly inspired Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's. That's the kind of vibe, right? And she was married yeah. to a couple of, you know, artistic famous men. A, a well-known socialite in the sort of, you know, not in the sort of Paris Hilton way, but in the sort of, you know, connected to the arts sort of way. And this is, as Morgan said, one of her relatively few roles. And she's great in it. Yeah, her, yeah, her filmography is, like, four things. And one of them is the Barbara Walters special in which she plays herself. So... You know, limited film credits, but she's really, really good and upsetting. And they show she's up. She's also like fifty. Yeah, which I I could tell, and I was like, oh my god, like they've actually cast. Wait, women in this are all middle aged. <laughs> Amazing what happens when a woman is in charge of the movie. Um, so they show up, and she clearly is like really into Nikki, but. She wants to just, like, have a normal conversation because he's brought his friend along. And is, like, trying to talk about current events. And Mikey tries to talk to her about current events, like, books. 
And Nikki is like, no, no. Like, we're going to have sex right here on the floor of this room. And... I mean, he definitely seems coked up. I mean, 76 in Philadelphia. Like, what can I say? And Mikey is, like, in the kitchen of this tiny apartment. So it's all framed in one shot. And he literally, like, picks up the tiny little trash can that, like, has a lid on it and, like, moves it and, like, sits down on it, like, behind the table. I was laughing like crazy, even though it was horrible, because the framing is designed to make you feel his discomfort. It's so uncomfortable. Oh my god. Because it's like, the kitchen and the living room are like the same room. It's a studio type situation. So like, Nikki is having sex with his girlfriend in a very unsensual manner on the floor. And Mikey is like, basically about 15 feet away in essentially the same room, trying not to watch. And it's just like, this is the worst and you're not respecting your girlfriends. And Nikki's literally saying things to her like, we're just, we're all alone right now. And then they cut to Peter Falk, whose face is just like, I want to die. And it's obviously awful, but it is funny. Like, you are supposed to find this entertaining, right? Like, you can't not be like, oh my god, this is just absurd. The way it's framed is all intended to have make you feel that way. And then, <laughs> Nikki's done. And he goes over to Mikey and is like, oh, it's your turn now. Go over. Like, she's up for anything. Like, she's totally into it. I don't remember what exactly he says, but that is the gist. And Mikey goes over and I don't remember what he asks her some question about politics. And she's just like, immediately figures out what's going on. Is like, oh, no, 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 no. And he repeatedly tries to kiss her. And she keeps saying no. And then finally she like bites him and he slaps her across the face. And it is so shocking and upsetting because up to this point, even though you know that he's the one who's conducting this like hit situation, he's Peter Falk. And Nikki's the one who's just been acting like a total maniac the whole time, including like making a very racist comment at a black club they wound up at briefly. So he's the one who seems somehow like bad and then you see this and you're like oh no never mind like that you're just both awful like they're so they're so fucking horrible to this woman and basically it's like even though this woman is like 50 she definitely has this sort of youthful naivety and the fact that she's even in a relationship with this guy in the first place is just like your judgment and your self-esteem are not sound no 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 clearly one of the elements of nikki's extreme immaturity is that he thinks it's cool and acceptable to essentially be like pimping out his girlfriend and using his girlfriend as like this kind of sign of masculinity. And I don't even, it's like Mikey isn't even interested in her, but because like the situation has been offered to him, he's like, well, don't mind if I do like fucking married Mikey. (laughs) And this poor woman is like, I mean, she's being like assaulted by her boyfriend and like her boyfriend's friend. And it's just like, you're both scumbags. This is awful. So and again, I was I just was watching the scene and was like, oh my god, like no man making this movie in the 70s and very few men now would have like remotely gotten this. Right? Like it was like, it was horrible to watch, but I also felt really electrified by it because it felt so right to me. And that is very rare. And like not to be, you know, too gender essentialist about this, but clearly she is paying attention to what the women in this movie are experiencing, even though the men are the what the movie is about. 
mm-hmm. in a way that you just don't get normally. Even in, like, there are plenty of good movies about toxic masculinity made by men. I mean, I'm not going to, like, make a list right now, but they definitely I exist. Mean, all of the Scorsese's, which is, like, the direct, yes, like, the closest absolutely. comparison here. There's and so much overlap. Most of them, not not meaning Scorsese specifically, but, like, the genre in general, those Scorsese's also often fall into this category. Like, the women are just not that well-written. <laughs> or they're, like, fine, but, you know, it's, it is what it is. And in this, you're just like, oh my god, this is horrible. And so clearly, like, she just clearly understands the situation. And there's another brief scene where Nikki, like, goes and sees his wife, and he has a very young child. (laughs) He has. He has not spent any time with this child, but, like, you know. Oh, that was, like, I was so upset there as well, because, like, he goes earlier on, like, he's, like, when they're making small talk to catch up with each other, Mikey's like, oh, how's the kid Nikki? And Nikki's like, oh, you know, he's, like, my kid's at the age where it's you know, he holds on to your thumb or whatever, which is like a, you know, cute baby thing. And then he like basically breaks into his ex-wife's house, like desperate for any kind of warmth or attention after like fucking around with his girlfriend and with Mikey. And then goes to hang out with his baby, who's like, who is this? And he's like trying to force the baby to hold his hand. And I was like, I was just like, no. (laughs) It's like the baby just want to hold your hand. The baby's like asleep. It's like, who is this strange man? Like what's going on? just... Uh, no. But his wife, <laughs> his wife's living with her mother, and the mother's like, don't let him in, and he essentially breaks into the apartment. And his wife is like, get out, get out, get out. And, but eventually, kind of, he's like, They're, they've got a hit out of me, like, I'm gonna die. And she eventually kind of breaks down, and like, they make out. She's like, I don't want you to die. But it didn't feel like wrong to me that she was having that reaction, even though you're like, this guy is really bad because of like, she's wrapped up in this weird emotional situation. And, like, John Cassavetti is, is an alcoholic and he's a scum, but he's really hot. So, like, of course this, you know, is happening. Yeah, it's a real understanding of, like, when a shit man is attractive rather yes. than the vast number of movies where the protagonist is a shit man and women are arbitrarily attracted to him. Yes, absolutely. That is the perfect way to put it. And I think, again, this is, like, the conundrum of this movie that I think it gets so right is that it's not sanitizing or romanticizing their behavior at all. All the stuff we're describing is just horrible. But it's not presenting them as, like, cold-blooded psychopaths, which is a way of romanticizing the behavior in a different angle, actually. Um, although there are people like that, obviously. Yeah. It's just, like, they're really kind of lovable in a certain way. And also they're horrible. And that's, like, the problem with men. Obviously, hashtag battle men. <laughs> but like, you know, like the, this is the thing, right? It's like abusive, these abusive people, like you get some sort of, you know, sociopathic figures. Obviously, there are many of them. But there are also guys who just like don't know how to behave because they haven't been trained in how to behave. And they're not inherently like hateable figures if you're just sort of watching them in this way. It's just that they don't get it. And she clearly, again, like, loves these guys, but is like, but also they're awful. And it's so much simpler to be like, oh, well, he's a horrible psychopath and should be, you know, locked up forever. And it's like, mm, they're just fuck-ups. It's really complicated, which I think is what's so brilliant about the movie. And again, it's like, they can't feel their own emotions properly. And so the way to deal with this is to be horrible to everyone, right? Like the scene with the girlfriend in the apartment where they're awful to her is immediately after they've 
had a good time together. And so Nikki's like, oh, let's sabotage this by blowing everything up. And the only way to do that is by like hurting other people. Right. I was just like transfixed by the whole thing, which I keep saying, but it felt so right to me in so many ways about behavior and the sort of like inability to put people into boxes. And then the end is I, I was genuinely like someone has punched me in the stomach. <laughs> like I was really, really upset, which again, like if you don't feel anything for the characters, you're not going to be upset by the ending, which like it ends poorly. You'll be shocked to hear. Um, so <laughs> that's a sign that she succeeded in making you care about them not dying. Right. And if they were just purely horrible monsters, you would be like, well, great. Like you're done now. And instead I was like, oh no, 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 no. That's my little spiel. I don't know if you have anything to add. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my one thing, final thing that I'm going to add is that we actually forgot, crucially, the third the third most important character in this movie, which is the hitman. Yes, we should. Who's dogging their footsteps through the whole film. And he is played by character actor Ned Beatty, who you have definitely seen in something because he's been in 160 films. In my personal opinion, he is the uh, he is Lex Luthor's shit sidekick in the original Superman movies. However, he has been, as I say, in a million things. Um, but kind of his role in this is really great because he is playing the hitman whose job is to kill like this low life guy. But it's like basically the opposite of the sort of John Wicks of the world. Like, there's a lot of movies about hitmen. They are very overrepresented in Hollywood. But much in the sense that, like, most uh, actresses have at some point played a sex worker and those professions have not been accurately portrayed, the world of Hitman has also not really been accurately portrayed. And here we have a guy who's just some, like, middle-aged, unfit man who just, his, his superpower is that he owns a gun and is willing to murder people without remorse. He's not cool. He's not sexy. He doesn't really have any skills beyond being present and following people around. And he's getting paid a nominal sum, which is basically barely going to pay like his gas bill expenses. Um, and I feel like that's probably more truthful to the type of like hired killers you find on Craigslist to knock off your wife incompetently rather than having someone who's like, ah, I'm here with my blow dart to hang upside down from the bedroom ceiling. Yeah, he is so funny in this. Because he doesn't have to have any pathos because he's just there to be like, God, I took this job because I thought it was going to be easy and they're not paying me enough and now we can't find this guy. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, um, yeah, again, the sort of, like, banality of the whole thing, right? As opposed to any sort of, like, glamorous anything. Um, I mean... The the recent great hitman cultural product is Barry Bill Hader's show, which also oh, is God just like see Barry. I really need to see Barry. You really do. It's great, and that too is like this is a horrible job, and it will fuck you up. And violence is not sexy, but he's like killing people with a sniper rifle, and like I mean, it's still you know. <laughs> whereas this dude is just like driving around in his car with like a gun, and like waiting outside of a movie theater, and it's like I you. And uh, the lack of cell phones really screws him. This is the real problem. They just. Yes. You just can't can't follow this guy. Um, it did. I think that element did re remind me a little bit of the original Scar Starsky and Hutch TV series, which I, without a shred of irony, would highly recommend. I love old Starsky and Hutch, but so much of that show is sort of predicated on the concept that the only way you can ever share information is by going to a bar where your friend works and getting the payphone. <laughs> 
yeah, the payphone stuff. And they're like, I mean, Mikey's wife is like writing stuff down and then he's calling her, the hitman is calling her to get it. And then they've moved and then they can't find it. I mean, it was just really funny to me to be like, wow, this really would be so much easier if you could just text someone. But in 1976, that was not how it worked. So the, the, again, the like griminess and the specificity was really satisfying. And again, evidently came from accurate information, which you can kind of tell. And I just was really impressed. I really want to watch her other movies now, though my understanding is that they're quite different. But uh, it's too bad they didn't let her make more. But again, she was a woman. So what are you going to do? This, as I said, is on Criterion. So if you're in America and you want to watch this movie that will make you feel very unpleasant, go ahead. It's, it's there. Final word on Mikey and Nikki. We covered it all. I think we covered it all. Yeah. Great film. Uh, thank you so much again to Jen for sponsoring this. This is a movie that I'd been meaning to watch for a long time. It was like on my queue on the Criterion channel. And uh, this prompted me to actually do it. And I was really happy to have done so because I cannot stop thinking about it. So uh, very pleased about that. Yeah, I just thought of one final thing I was thinking of um, when I was kind of reading up a bit more about Elaine May's career. And it's just that her whole career is kind of all about partnerships and like back and forth. And she is the most, she is most well known for being in this like fast talking back and forth partnership with Mike Nichols. And that is very much what this film is about, but like in a much darker way. And obviously that is a common theme in many films, but I was like, interesting that this is the type of relationship that you are going for. Well, and as the there was a review by Jay Hoberman in the New York Times a couple of years ago, maybe even last year, when it was at the Village, when the film was playing at Film Forum, which we'll link to, and it was short and very good. And he pointed out that she named them after Mike Nichols. Yes, which is kind of amazing. And yeah, I mean, what a what a legacy to live, leave your your companion in that way. But his point was, like, clearly she loves them. She named them after Mike Nichols. But also, like, she named them after Mike Nichols. And she's like, and then these awful people. I mean, no, I'm not casting any aspersions, but it's just, like, odd sort of thing. Uh, apparently, like, betrayal is a big theme also. Again, I haven't seen the other movies. But, like, there's... It, it, I mean, comedians are all fucked up, right? So there's the dark stuff sort of bubbling under there. And this movie deals with a lot of that in a way that felt very smart to me. And it is funny, like, not laugh out loud funny exactly, but, like, the two guys are definitely funny and, like, play the neuroses in a smart way. Like, it's not like they're going around talking about the big drama of this situation, right? Like, they're just sort of running around being little shits. There's a scene that's both really upsetting and also just kind of absurd at the graveyard where Mikey is trying to say the Kaddish over the grave of Nikki's mother and Nikki's just like laughing hysterically and you're just like this is just black 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 you know tragic humor so yeah I mean she she knew what she was doing so if you would like to force us to watch a film of your choosing that option is available to you on Patreon we've gotten a lot of requests from we have and they're all great yeah we're very very grateful we will be making our way through them um we'll probably intersperse them with occasional other titles that if something new comes out we want to talk about or if we just want to you know do something else we'll do that but we have a lot of stuff that we'll be going through um so it will be a strange strange batch of stuff that we'll be talking about in the coming weeks 
so yeah, that is again on Patreon, patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. And next week we will be doing another request from a listener. The opposite of this film. Yes. Uh, it is a Nigerian romantic comedy called The Wedding Party, which I had not heard of. I love romantic comedy, so I'm very excited to see this. It's a huge hit. Very popular film in Nigeria. Um, and it's on Netflix, so we can all watch it on Netflix. Yes. Yeah, I love rom-coms, but I don't know that much about the genre outside of the UK and the US. So I'm very excited to get to sort of experience a different one as brought to us by this listener. So you guys should all watch that too. Again, it is on Netflix everywhere. So you can all watch that if you have a Netflix subscription. And uh, yeah, there will be more to come in the future weeks. We will also have a mini-sode on the Patreon about the half of it. The Another romantic comedy on Netflix, because that's what Netflix does these days. She says, rom-coms up the wazoo. This was the sort of like teen lesbian Cyrano movie that uh, got a lot of attention on the internet. And I watched it and found it very charming. I had some issues with it, as I do with most things, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. So if And I will watch it soon and form my own opinion. Yes. Um, very enjoyable film. Uh, and I know that lots of people online enjoyed it a lot and had opinions. So we will bring those opinions to you on Patreon. Other than that, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing on The Daily Dot, where I'm reviewing many TV shows and so forth. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.